0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel Rochester. Hey, so <clears throat> we're in Revelation chapter 19 this morning and uh you know, it's it's summertime, right? And so it's obviously it's summertime. You're starting to notice that with uh with the attendance at church and stuff and um I have a pastor friend that sent me a psalm for summer. And I thought it was kind of fitting, so I kind of wanted to share a psalm for summer with you. And so I'll begin with it. It starts out like this. Now it came to pass that spring turned to summer again. God's people raised their voices and said, Recreation is my shepherd, I shall not stay at home. He maketh me lie down in a sleeping bag. He leadeth me down the interstate each weekend. He restoreth my suntan. He leadeth me to state parks for comfort's sake. Even though I stray on the Lord's day, I fear no reprimand, for thou art with me. My rod and reel, they comfort me. I anointest my skin with oil, my gas tank runneth dry. Surely my trailer shall follow me all the weekends this summer, and I shall return to the house of the Lord this fall." (laughs) <laughs> I got a kick out of that. So anyways. Um you know it's it's in good humor, obviously. It's not uh, um I, I understand people we've got vacations. I'm actually going to a family reunion this summer, so um, but uh it's interesting. Anyways, take it for what it's worth, but <laughs> all right. Hey, let's get into our study in Revelation chapter nineteen. You'll notice the very beginning of verse one in chapter nineteen it says, After these things. Again, that's that Greek word, metatauta, that shows up again. And so we have to ask ourselves, after what things uh, does chapter 19 address? Well, it's after chapter 17 and chapter 18. You know, chapter 17, or 17 and 18 always are before chapter 19, or always before the number 19. And so what's going on in chapter 17? Chapter 17 deals with the destruction of religious Babylon at the start of the second half of the Great Tribulation. You'll recall as we went through that study in chapter 17, the Antichrist and the ten nations, they're in power at this time, and they, their, their vehicle or their method to get into power was a one-world religion, an apostate religion. Uh, but now at the end of the first half of the Tribulation, the beginning of the second half of the Tribulation, Antichrist has power established, and he no longer needs the one world religion. He's gonna stand in the temple, the Bible says, that will be erected at that time. And he's the abomination that causes desolation. He's gonna stand in there and demand that the world worship him. There are no more false religions, no more no more, you know, feel good type stuff. He's gonna just pure worship me. I'm God. That's what he's going to declare. And uh, at that time, the Antichrist, along with the ten nations, they're going to be God's instrument of judgment on religious Babylon. She's called the great harlot there in chapter 17. Then in chapter 18 is the destruction of commercial Babylon. Personally, I believe that is separate from the destruction described in chapter 17. Chapter 18, the destruction of commercial Babylon, I believe... Uh, occurs at the end of the second half of the Great Tribulation. And I think it has to be at the end to make sense because at that point, all industry, all commerce are completely destroyed in one hour. God himself is destroying Babylon by fire at that point. So it's after these things that we get to chapter 19, verse 1. So after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah! Then a voice from, uh, came from the throne saying, "Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great." So this this great multitudes worshiping there in heaven, and they say, "True and righteous are God's judgments." Last week we were in uh, Mark chapter twelve. We just started Mark chapter twelve, and Jesus tells a parable in Mark chapter twelve of of um, the, the owner who who bought a vineyard and he, and he set it up, he put a vat in there, he, he you know, watering he, he, he got it all prepared so that it would produce fruit uh, and then he hired some servants to take care of the uh, of the vineyard for him and we were speaking the vineyard of course was israel, and the, 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 the servants taking care of the of the uh, vineyard were the the religious leaders of the time, the priests. And uh, the prophets and those, or not the prophets, but the priests and the, uh, later on it would be the uh, Pharisees, excuse me, and the Sadducees. Um, And then at some point he expected there to be fruit, and so then he sent servants. And one by one, and each time the servants came to the vineyard, the, the, those people that were taking care of the vineyard, they would mistreat the servants and they would torture them, and some of them they would kill. And then finally, they, after many, many, many servants that the, that the vineyard, uh, vineyard owner sent, he finally said, I'm going to send my own son, and surely they'll respect my own son. And of course, you know the story they, they killed the son, right? They killed Jesus Christ. All that pointing to Israel. For centuries God had been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to the people of Israel and they were rejecting the prophets mistreating them killing them finally he sent his son his only beloved son and of course they crucified him and and the point is that when when people stand before God in heaven at the judgment throne we'll get to that when we get to chapter 20 when they stand before God in judgment no one's going to say it's not fair I didn't know, you know, this isn't right. I've been framed. God's judgments are true and righteous. And so this, the church is, is saying this right here. Now, there's two important aspects I want to point out in, uh, that, are, that we see here in this passage of Scripture that I believe reveal a little bit of heaven or about heaven to us. In heaven, you'll notice that there is two things that we see in these verses, obedience. And unity. You'll notice that it's a great multitude in heaven, and they're responding in, be- in obedience to the call to rejoice. Uh, in back in chapter eighteen, verse twenty, the voice from heaven says, "Rejoice over her," speaking about the destruction of Babylon. "Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her." So the, the call to the call to rejoice. And we get to chapter 19, and what are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're obeying. So we see obedience in heaven. You know, on earth, where we're at right now in our life, there's some obedience to God's commands by some people at certain times, right? I don't obey the Lord every single waking moment of the day. I disobey sometimes. And so on earth there's some obedience to God's commands by some people at certain times. But listen, in heaven, everyone all obey God's commands all the time. There is no disobedience in heaven whatsoever. And that kind of leads me to this verse, that this passage of scripture that Paul wrote in Second Corinthians ten, verses three through six. And you guys are probably very familiar with this passage of scripture. Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And then this verse is what just kind of jumps out at me. And being ready to punish all disobedience... When your obedience is fulfilled. I've always looked at that verse. What does it mean when your obedience is fulfilled? You know, the Holy Spirit, when you, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, you get the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And uh, the Holy Spirit, as soon as you become a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit starts working obedience in your lives in our lives. Why? It's in preparation uh, for an eternity of obedience in heaven. So let me ask you this, just rhetorically. Are you resisting Him? Are you obeying the Lord this morning? Whatever the Lord's commanded you to do, are you you obeying Him right now? You know, our our lives in Christ on earth, I kind of compare it to a, a spiritual boot camp. I don't know how many of you were in the military. I was. I went through boot camp, and I think this life on earth that you and I live—it's like a spiritual boot camp, preparing us for an eternity in heaven. When you're in boot camp, you learn different skills. You learn different things you have to do, and and you know the one thing is they don't grade on a curve. They don't say, "Well, that's good enough, man." They do it over and over and over the drills until you get it right. You get you—you you, got to get it right. <clears throat> There's no options. And so it's it's you know our lives once we're saved it's kind of like that it's kind of like a spiritual boot camp the holy spirit's preparing us for that full obedience when you and I get to heaven so <clears throat> we see obedience in this passage of scripture the next thing we see is unity again think of think of the our lives here on earth right now <clears throat> on earth you know even among Christians, even among born-again brothers and sisters in the Lord, there are competing voices. I mean, after all, look, we have so many denominations. How many different churches are there in the city of Rochester alone? And not only that, but there's strife, there's dissension, and disunity. Why is that? Well, it's because of our flesh, right? Well, Paul was concerned about that with the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians one ten, he wrote them and he said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there are uh, that, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see, on earth, there's all these different factions and divisions. But in heaven there's unity there's rejoicing with one voice think about this john's hearing these this he's hearing what he's writing down here in verses 1 through 5 there in revelation 19 he's able to understand the words he's able to discern what a great multitude is saying have you ever been to a place where there's like thousands of people maybe before a concert or before some kind of program and you're in an auditorium or in a stadium you're getting ready to watch a football game or something and the noise there's noise I mean it's it's thundering right it's like but you can't make out one thing it's all it's just it's just a a rumble but that's not what John hears in heaven John hears one voice speaking that unity that's there in heaven he understands the words that's being spoken, and it sounds to him like one person speaking. I know I shared this with you before, but uh, one of the things that we had to do in boot camp, I remember we we must have goofed up once at, well, we goofed up more than once, but I remember whenever you'd goof up during things of the daytime, they'd wake you up in the middle of the night, drag you out to a parade ground, and they'd have you go through and do drills, different kinds of drills. And I remember... <clears throat> Um, and I was sleeping pretty soundly, and I I woke up, and there's these bunks, you know, in this room, they're they're just getting thrown all over, and the the commander was in there, and he was trying to make a point, I guess, and so everybody was, he had apparently, and I didn't miss, I missed it because I was sleeping, uh, but apparently he had told everybody to shove everything in their lockers into their duffel bags, you know, big canvas duffel bag, and and go out on the parade ground, and so I, I woke up, and there's people doing all kinds of stuff, and so, so I shoved everything into my into my duffel bag, and what I had heard, that he well apparently what I didn't hear, was that he said, we had these little ink bottles for stenciling all of our, you know, your names and your serial number and everything. Apparently he said, leave the stand in the formation, at attention, holding these bags with everything in it. So, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds, something like that, holding them out like this. And then at one point he says, okay, I want, when I give you the command to drop them, I'm going to hear one bag dropping. And so that's like two in the morning, right? So we're standing out there, you know, and you're barely, you know, you're barely them and finally he says, okay, drop them. And you and goes, doo, 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 doo. you know, and he's like, okay, we're going to do it again. We did it, I don't know how many hours we did that until finally you could hear one bag dropping. Well, the thing about the kind of a side thing is, I got, we got back and we stuck stuff back in our locker. I had ink over everything because I didn't know you weren't supposed to bring those little bottles in there. My bottles crushed after a while and so there's ink on it. Uh, it was kind of funny, but anyways. In heaven, there's one voice. It sounds like one person speaking even though there's a multitude. And right now, you know, for you and I as believers here on earth, The Holy Spirit is working unity in the body of Christ. He's working unity in you and I in preparation for heaven. Again, a rhetorical question. Are you resisting Him? Are you resisting what the Holy Spirit's trying to bring about in the church? He's trying to bring about unity. And if there's murmuring, if there's gossip, if there's uh, people causing dissension, then you're, you're resisting what the work of the Holy Spirit that He's trying to do in the body of Christ. You know, the other thing about boot camp is it strips you of your individuality. When you get in there, everybody gets the same haircut. You get the same clothes. Everybody looks the same, basically. And they're trying to do that for a purpose because they're trying to ingrain in you that you have to work as a team. There's no individuals. There's no lone rangers. You have to work. And that's, that's essential in military operations. You have to submit to one another for a higher cause. That's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in the body of Christ right now. Not that we can't be different. I mean, there's variety. God loves variety. But yet in certain things there's unity. We speak with the same voice. We have the same heart. We have the same mind. We have the same purpose. <laughs> so also something else to notice here: the great multitude there. Verses 1 through 3 that are look at who's responding in verses 1 through 3. You'll notice that it was a great multitude of responds in verse 1 through 3 and then in verse 4 you'll notice that the 24 elders and the four living creatures join in response with the great multitude that's worshiping in verses 1 through 3 in other words there's a distinction between the groups there in those verses So you have the great multitude. Who are they? Well, I believe they're the saints martyred during the tribulation, chapter 7 and chapter 14 that we talked about. The 24 elders, I believe, symbolize the church that is raptured prior to the tribulation in chapter 4. So you notice that there's two groups there. Worshiping. Verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Again, notice something here. Who is saying the marriage of the Lamb has come? It's the great multitude, right? Well, who are the great multitudes? I said, I believe that they're tribulation saints. Because if it was the church that's included there, the church that's been raptured, they would be saying, we have made ourselves ready. But you notice it doesn't say that. It says she has made herself ready. His wife. So these are the, the tribulation saints that are, are, are proclaiming this, that the church... Uh, a separate group of people, the bride, the pre-tribulation rapture church has made herself ready. Well, how did the bride make herself ready? Philippians two twelve, Paul says this Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, but not as not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, how does a wife prepare herself for marriage? How does a wife prepare herself for marriage? Paul wrote this concerning the bride of Christ, which is you and I, the church. 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that's like I've engaged you in our in our vernacular. I've in, I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I love that. The simplicity that is in Christ. In other words, in Christ alone. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this: as a chaste virgin, don't be flirting with anyone else. Can you imagine on your wedding day, guys? You're getting ready. You know your your bride's there; she's adorned. You're ready. You know you're in the, you're up there front, and and your wife's gonna get, or your are soon to be wife. Your bride is is getting starting to get escorted down the aisle by maybe your your dad or her dad or somebody. You know, and she stops about midway, and and there she sees her old boyfriend there in the congregation, and she's like, whoa. Oh, goes over and gives him a kiss. How would you feel? It's like, whoa, what's going on here? You're my bride. You're supposed to forsake all others. What are you doing? (coughs) The simplicity that is in Christ alone. As a chaste virgin, don't be flirting with anyone else. Listen, what, what am I talking about? You know, we are saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And too often, we as the bride, we flirt with others. In other words, it's Jesus, or we believe in faith in Jesus, but it's Jesus and something else. And there are a lot of churches that teach Jesus and something else. For example, Jesus and legalism. Paul dealt with that in Galatians, Galatians 3 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Jesus and you can fill in the blank. Jesus and, you know, dressing right, or Jesus and doing, going through certain hoops or whatever. It's Jesus and legalism, but yet the simplicity that's in Christ. Here's another one, and, you know, I may end up offending some of you here this morning, and uh, it's the word, but... How about Jesus and psychology? Jesus and psychology, that's a big one these days. Paul wrote this to the church in Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says... As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then he says this, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. You're complete in Jesus Christ. So there's Jesus Jesus and psychology. Here's another one. Jesus and deliverance ministries. I'm not referring to accountability with people. That's not what I'm talking about but Jesus and ministries are specifically addressed as deliverance ministries. I really have a problem with this because of what Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 13. Listen, speaking of Jesus, he says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He has, that's past tense, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Chapter 2 verse 15, same book. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Right now our government's trying to get together with the North Koreans, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to get them to disarm their nuclear weapons, or their program anyways. Why? Because right now they're a dangerous threat. Iran's a dangerous threat with their nuclear program so our goal and whatever we're doing as uh, that's that's our public or foreign policy is to disarm these nations because what they're they're a danger as long as they're armed if we can get them to disarm they're no longer a danger and here jesus has disarmed principalities and powers they're no longer a threat to us So it's not Jesus and psychology, Jesus and legalism, or Jesus and deliverance ministry, or Jesus and anything else. It's just simply Jesus alone. Faith in Christ. I want to share something else that I think is very, very important. In fact, even this week, I was I was for my own self. I, I'm like, I have to remind myself of this. And I don't hear too many people mentioning this. I don't hear this from a pulpit very often, but I have to mention this. This is what I have to say. How you and I live our lives as Christians on earth has a direct impact on the capacity for you and I to enjoy the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and heaven after that. How you and I live our lives as Christians today has a direct impact on your capacity to enjoy heaven. You go, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, heaven's heaven, right? I mean... Jesus said, let me ask you this, are you faithful? Are you a faithful follower of Jesus this morning? To the degree, excuse me, to the degree that you are faithful to the little things on earth that he's given you, he will make you an overseer of greater things during the millennium. That's simple, that's Paul says that. Are you a faithful person? Are you a faithful Christian? Are you faithful to those little things he's given you to do? How about this? Are you a carnal Christian? You guys know what a carnal Christian is? That's someone who's just living. They're, they're born again, but they're <clears throat> they're following the deeds of the flesh. They're living after the flesh. Are you a carnal Christian saved but indulging your flesh? Well, the good news is you will be saved. The bad news is everything that you're doing as a born-again believer that's done in the flesh, it's going to be burned up by fire. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, I believe it is, even says, you'll be saved though by fire what he means by that is there's going to be some people when we get to heaven you're going to go i smell a campfire somewhere i smell smoke you smell smoke yeah that's the guy he just he made it in but man he's got his clothes smells like smoke you know he's just one step out of hell basically but he's saved now some of you might go wait a minute you know i remember what david wrote in psalm 84 verse 10 he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I mean, man, as long as I can get in. that's all. I mean, at least I'm in heaven, right? Some people have that attitude as Christians. Let me ask you this. Is that all you're settling for? Just to get in the door? I, I, I want to live my own way. I want to do my own things. I want fire insurance, okay? I want to make it into heaven. But, you know, I still want to live... The way I want to live. I don't want to surrender to the Lord. Is that all you're settling for? Just to make it in by the skinnier teeth. You know, in our day and age, we see a lot of this. There's a lot of people that are, they consider themselves entitled. You know what I'm talking about? Entitlements, that's a big thing that that our government, the budget, you know, and paying entitlements, welfare, and all these different programs there are a lot of people in this country that consider themselves entitled why well because our government for one thing has conditioned them to feel that way our culture has conditioned them you know they're they they're owed indulgent parents have conditioned them and so there are people out there that just feel like they're owed and you've heard stories of people who went from poverty to riches I don't have any exact illustrations here, but you've heard of people. They the rags to riches story, right? They 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 went from poverty to riches <clears throat> through hard work, maybe taking multiple jobs, wise investing, man, they just invested at the right time or saving or whatever. <clears throat> Those people, they have a greater appreciation and a greater capacity to enjoy their riches. How? Oh, well, there's that satisfaction. You know, I worked hard and I earned this there's a value to what they've earned there's a gratitude a lot of those people they they know where they came from and they're so grateful of being given that opportunity to to make riches to to become wealthy they've seen the reward from their industry from what the hard work that they've put in they've got this sense of accomplishment and and you know you've heard people stories of people like that and then they have children they've they've went from rags to riches they 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 went from poverty to riches through hard work <clears throat> they know the value of a dollar and then they die and they pass it on to the next generation their children that never went through that they were never disciplined they never had to be disciplined in their use of money or in their use of time you know they didn't have to take multiple jobs they just received what the blessings of their hard work that their fathers worked up well, you know for a fact that those, that next generation, those people that are entitled, that consider themselves entitled, title, they do not, and in fact, they cannot appreciate the riches in the same way that their parents. They, they, it's just an impossibility they, because they didn't go through those steps. Well, that's the same way with heaven. You might, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that we're going to be laying crowns at Jesus' feet, and you might go, you know what? i don 't need no crowns in heaven. I tell you what that 's get that thinking out of your head. You want crowns you want crowns. Why? Because when you get to heaven and you see Jesus Christ and you see, you see how worthy he is, you want to give anything that you have to him you, and it 's like, man, I wish I had more crowns to give to jesus you 're going to want crowns in heaven, crowns of righteousness, all those different crowns that you read about in the Bible. The more crowns to lay at jesus feet, the better. In other words, the greater you had to endure, uh, had to endure this life in patient long suffering, the greater your reward is going to be in heaven. The more you learned obedience, sacrificial love, submitting, the greater your capacity will be to enjoy heaven. How you live your life on earth today is going to have an impact for eternity. Paul said this to Timothy, first Timothy four: eight, "For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You know, you and I, we can spare ourselves a lot of grief right now in this life by living godly. We can spare ourselves a lot of grief, right? don't have to go to jail. You don't have to get divorced. You know, your wife doesn't have to leave you. I mean, there's a lot of things you and I can do that, to spare ourselves grief by being godly, by living a godly knife, life now. But guess what? It also pays off dividends, huge dividends for the life to come. There's so much value in living for God. Those of you that minister... And I know, you know, yesterday there were people that were ministering here. They were doing lots of work and 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 sometimes, you know, you can get involved in ministry and 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 people don't even know that you did something, you know? It's like, "Well, nobody even recognized that I did this. I I worked really hard." But, you know, that's not why you're doing it, you know, but it's like, "It would have been nice if somebody saw it or somebody said thank you or something." But they don't. I want to encourage you if that if you feel that way. Hebrews 6.10, Paul says this, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, says this, (laughs) For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. How you live your life now is going to have a capacity on enjoying heaven. And if you've been ministering and you've never been recognized for it, no one's ever said thank you, they've just taken for granted, but you've been ministering faithfully, God hasn't forgot. He's going to reward you. There's a reward for that in heaven. Those of us that are suffering. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That suffering that you're going through in this life. And I know there are Christians that suffer. Some people say that, you know, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous and everything, and and you shouldn't suffer. You don't have enough faith. But listen, I know lots of believers that suffer. But in comparison to heaven, it's not not worth it. It's nothing. Well, let's talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it's very interesting that the passage speaks this way because there's pictures being painted here Marriage customs varied in the ancient world but generally they had three major aspects to them. The very first aspect was that the marriage was prearranged prior to the consummation of the wedding. In other words when when uh, it was arranged typically by parents uh, before the children were old enough to get to you know to, to know what was going on before they were adults enough to old enough to assume responsibility the marriage was arranged by the parents and usually there was an acceptable dowry an agreement for a dowry that would be made for the bride once that agreement was reached at that point the couple was considered legally married even though they you know it wasn't consummated they were considered legally married at this point so that that was one of the cultural things in the ancient world the second aspect of it was that would be at a suitable time of age the bridegroom He'd be accompanied by his friends, and he would go to the home of the bride, and escort her to his home. If you read about the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew chapter twenty-five, verses one through thirteen, that's what's being depicted there: the bridegroom coming for the for the you know with the wedding party for the for the bride and the virgins, the you know the 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 guests, I guess, would be her attendants. That's the second aspect of a of an ancient wedding. The third aspect is that once the bridegroom had brought the bride to her home, guests would be invited to the marriage supper, and at that point, the wedding would be consummated. Those are pictures. That, 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 that's what occurred in the ancient world. Listen, Jesus Christ purchased you and I, his bride, and he, what was the acceptable dowry was his blood. He purchased us with his own blood. And once you and I enter into that saving relationship with Jesus, even though we haven't gone to the marriage supper of the Lamb yet, we are the bride of Christ. Once you accept Jesus Christ, you are the bride of Christ. We enter into a covenant with Him and we're married to Him at this point. We're speaking about our salvation. Even though the wedding supper is yet future, you and I right now, we're the bride of Christ. Then at some point or uh, excuse me, at some appointed time, the bridegroom returns to take his bride home. We're talking about the rapture of the church at some point. Listen, in in, in this parable of the ten virgins, the, the, they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming. And the church doesn't know the day or the hour that Jesus is returning for his bride. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility, like the bride's responsibility in that, in those par- the virgins in that, in that parable is, is to be ready to be, to be waiting for the bridegroom to come. And it is that with you and I, Matthew 25:13, Jesus said, watch, therefore, for, you know, neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. So at some point, Jesus returns for his church. We call that the rapture of the church. And then, at that point, the Lord Jesus is going to consummate our wedding at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse 8. And to her, this is the bride of Christ, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I love that, that bright, clean, fine linen. And it says that that's, that's the righteous acts of the saints. What are the righteous acts of the saints? In other words, what righteous acts save you and I? You know what the answer is? None. None. Isaiah 64 6, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The most righteous thing you do, it means nothing. Nothing. Paul said in Romans 4, 4 and 5, he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. See, it's your faith in Christ Jesus that saves you. When you you put your trust in Christ Jesus for your salvation, you repent of your sins, you are justified by faith. We heard at the men's conference, you know, just as if I hadn't done it. There's no record of any sin that you did. You get to heaven and there's no record. It's it's wiped clean. That's what justified is. We're justified by faith. We're declared righteous before the Father. So what are these righteous acts of the saints there in verse 8? Well, I believe it's the process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is doing In your and my life, subsequent, subsequent, excuse me, to our salvation. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ accepts you and I as we are. We come to faith. You don't clean up your act and come to Jesus, right? He comes to you where you're at, in the deepest, darkest sin, the most, the most heinous place in life that you might be. He accepts you as you are because He loves you. But He loves you so much He doesn't want to leave you in that condition. So he gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, once you become saved, the Holy Spirit starts doing that work. He's whispering in your heart, "Don't do that. You don't belong there anymore." You know, follow Jesus. You know, and 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 it's that process of 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 sanctification. That's the righteous acts that I believe is being spoken of here. Paul said this in Hebrew or me, Ephesians five twenty five. He said, "Husbands love." your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I don't feel that way right now. But the Holy Spirit's doing that work in me. He's doing that work in you. Making you and I more and more like Jesus. That's the whole process of sanctification. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. I'd love to do a, my own study on this or or maybe do a, you know, one week on this, but there are Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We've looked at, this is the fourth one that we've come across. There's actually, I think, three more, seven, I believe, Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse thir- uh, 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing for you to be here, not just to hear me. In fact, probably not to hear me, a blessing for you to study the book of Revelation, to hear it, to read it, and to obey it. There's a blessing. That's one of the Beatitudes. You're blessed if you do it. Verse, uh, Revelation 14, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. When we were in chapter 14, that was referring to the tribulation saints. They're going to be blessed Those that die the martyr's death from then on, at that point in the tribulation, they're going to be blessed. There's a blessing for them. Chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So there's a blessing for you and I to to, to keep looking for the return of Jesus Christ, to have it in the forefront of our hearts and our minds, to be living in response because Jesus could come back at any moment. There's a blessing for you and I to do that. And here, verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who are those that are blessed in verse 9? Well, we know obviously the bride's blessed, right? Obviously the, bride's, the bride herself, the church. But also those who are invited to the marriage supper as guests. Because it wasn't just the bride and the bridegroom. There were guests at the wedding. Well, who are these guests? Well, I believe this is the Old Testament saints and those tribulation saints. Verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know John is so caught up in what he's seeing and what he's hearing and it's just so overwhelming and 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 he just man he just falls down before the messenger who happens to be an angel. And he gets rebuked pretty severely by this angel. A word to the wise, don't worship angels. And there are people out there that do. They get so much focus on worship. Don't worship angels. They're fellow servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say this too. Don't give too much credit to fallen angels. Because I see that too. Don't give too much credit to fallen angels. Remember, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has disarmed principalities and powers. Some people give Satan way too much credit than what he's due. Don't do that worship god alone the bible says he was in you is greater than he who is in the world in fact he's triumphed over them so we don't need to certainly don't worship angels don't substitute any worship uh, you know uh, paul says you know if we are an angel from heaven came and told you any other gospel than what we told you let him be accursed even an angel and definitely don't give too much credit to fallen angels And he says this, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, Jesus Christ is not only the theme, the major theme of Scriptures. You know, when we get done with Revelation, we're going to, I'm assuming right away, but I'll be praying about it. We're getting into the book of Exodus pretty soon. I'm excited about that because I love going through the Old Testament and finding Jesus in the Old Testament because He's throughout the Old Testament you can see him pictures of him i love i love pointing those things out so jesus christ is not only the major theme of all scriptures old and new but he's also the central theme of prophecy he's the very core of prophecy because prophecy at its heart is to unveil christ to us that's the whole that's the whole purpose behind prophecy you and i we've reached a very pivotal point in the prophecy contained in the book of Revelation right here, right now at verse 10 and going into verse 11, this is a pivotal point in the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation is not just a book prophesying in times, although it does. But that's not the purpose behind the book of Revelation so that you can know, know about the different things that are happening. No, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And again, we've been building up to a climax, and here it comes. Verse 11, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords in all His glory and splendor. Remember, the Lord was revealed in the Gospels to us. As He was revealed in the Gospels, He was the Savior, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But the Lord Jesus, that was His first coming. The Lord Jesus at His second coming as revealed as we'll get to here, He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The very pivotal point here in, in chapter 19 and we're not going to da- tackle it tonight, today. Otherwise, we would be doing it till tonight. <laughs> we're going to tackle that next week. We're going to finish the second half of chapter 19. We're going to have communion. So if you guys want to come up for those that are on the worship team. If I could impress anything on us this morning, it's this our life whether you're whether you're suffering as a believer, whether you're ministering without recognition, whether you're you know the Lord's laid some stuff on you, and he wants you to obey every every decision that you and I make right now as born again believers, it has weight, it has value, yeah, you're saved, you're going to heaven. Okay, If you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, you are born again, you're saved. But everything from now on has an impact on life living in the millennium and also life in eternity in heaven. So just keep that in the forefront. And I, again, this week I had to remind myself, hey, what am I doing? I, I need to be preparing for heaven. So I, If you take anything out of that, I pray that that's what the Lord speaks to you this morning. Why don't you stand up? You guys have been sitting for a while, and then we'll sit back down and have communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, we we see perfect obedience in heaven. And, Lord, I know that's the desire of our hearts right now. Lord, we want to obey you in everything that you command us, everything that you tell us to do. Lord, we we just want to 100% obey you all the time. And yet, Lord, we know that we don't. Lord, we're still in our flesh, and our flesh sometimes is so strong and speaks so loud. And Lord, sometimes we (laughs) surrender to our flesh instead of surrendering to You. Lord, I thank You that there is coming a time in heaven when our flesh will be done away with. We will have glorified bodies. Lord, we will worship You in purity with no flesh involved, in pure worship. Lord, we will be fully obedient to you. Lord, there will be such a unity in heaven that we've never experienced here on earth. But Lord, I pray that as you're doing that work in us, Lord, that we would see more and more obedience in our own lives and more and more unity in the body of Christ, and even in this church here at Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Lord, may we do our part to bring about that full obedience and that full unity that we see pictured in heaven. So I thank you for your word this morning. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated.